0: Turn with me, if you would, to James chapter 1, over to the New Testament to James chapter 1. For those of you who have ever traveled overseas before, you are probably familiar with the practice of reading various materials to find out what the culture and the people are like in the country you are visiting. Well, recently I came across an article highlighting some uh, several unique characteristics about American culture to help outsiders know what to expect of us. And uh, here were some of the things that were listed. Number one, Americans are extremely independent, extremely individualistic, and they need a lot of elbow room. In other words, American people like their personal space. And uh, judging by how you were seated this morning, I think most of us would have to nod and uh, agree with that assessment. All of us like our personal bubble, and we don't like that bubble to be popped by anybody. And uh, the second thing that was listed is that Americans are extremely informal and call most people by their first name or their nickname. And I don't know about you, but I love this about our culture. And maybe it was just me play, growing up and playing sports, but assigning people people uh, nicknames or being called by certain nicknames has been a major part of my life. But let me warn you, it's not that way with all other countries. In fact, I had a friend from our church go to another country once, and he called a man by a nickname, and it wasn't a bad nickname, but it was a nickname, and and he had done it for about three or four days, and he didn't realize things weren't just translating well on the other side. And so he kept doing it and doing it. One night he had him over for dinner, this gentleman did, and and he used it again, and that man eventually asked him to leave his house. And so uh, be careful of that when you visit other countries. It works over here. It doesn't always work over there. Well, here's a third thing that stood out to me. American people smile a lot and talk easily to strangers, often sharing personal stories. And uh, you may not realize it, but we as Americans, we smile quite a bit, don't we? And uh, I didn't realize this until I went to Russia for the very first time about four to five years ago. I had the privilege of traveling there with Pastor Kelly for a pastor's training. And one morning while there, I went for a jog early in the morning. There was two occasions on this one morning that illustrated this to me. One, I went for a jog early in the morning. There was a a river right across the street from the hotel. And so, you know, I was jogging these laps. There was a bridge there on both sides. So I go around uh, over and then go down and then come on the other side. And as I was jogging these laps, I would pass certain people and smile and wave. And the response I usually got was a pretty serious look, a pretty stern look. And uh, after that happened the first time, and the second time, and the third, and the fourth, I started wondering if maybe I was on the wrong side of town. And later that morning, uh, I went up to the hotel, and after getting dressed, I was going to meet Pastor Kelly down at the breakfast hall. We were up in like the eighth or ninth floor, going down to the second or third floor where the breakfast hall was. And as I entered into the elevator, there were some Russian officials who were dressed in uniform. And uh, this was about five or six years ago. And uh, after smiling and greeting them and telling them, I was from America. One of the men looked at me and said with a very serious look on his face, he said one word, Bush, referring to our president. And uh, <laughs> thankfully, at that point, the elevator had reached his destination and I was on my way. But uh, let me just say this, my time in Russia was a great experience overall. I loved the people there. But after coming back, I was reminded time and time again that, uh, that we're a pretty smiley bunch, aren't we, here in America? Well, fourth, another thing that stood out to me in the article was that at an American funeral here in America, it is not normal to make loud, sad sounds. In times of distress and deep sadness, Americans try to keep strong emotions inside. And again, this was illustrated to me the first time I traveled to Russia. While there, I had the privilege of attending a funeral. While Pastor Kelly was teaching, I was over with these men. And, and, uh, and while attending the funeral, the women relatives one of the things that stood out to me is, is one. Or, I'm sorry. Is the women relatives of the man who died, they were leaning against the casket, and they were sobbing, and they were wailing for a very long period of time. Now, apparently that practice, as you know, uh, uh, isn't common in our country. Uh, apparently it's not unusual for many countries. Uh, but as you know, it doesn't usually happen in ours. And, of course, that's why it stood out to me on that occasion. And then a fifth thing, I guess, that stood out to me in this article is, and maybe this is just because it it caught my eye because of my work in youth ministry work with teenagers, but it said this, in America, it is common for teenagers to wear strange clothes and to have very messy rooms. And uh, if you have a teenager, I won't ask for a show of hands to see for how many of you that statement rings true. Well, there are many more characteristics of our culture and society listed in the article. Time would fail us in considering them all. But as I read through the list, one quality that I noticed was missing, and one that I believe may be one of the strongest of all, is the idea of victimization. And I'm not sure if you recognize this or not, beloved, but today we live in a very victim-centered society where we've been taught to blame everyone or anyone except ourselves. As a society, we seek to justify sin, make excuses for sin, and we're always looking for ways to cover our sin rather than take personal responsibility for our sin. A while back, I came across a few stories that illustrate this very point. Here's the first one. Quote, A drug dealer and cocaine addict from the Bronx was acquitted of murder after killing eight children and two women he shot in the head at point-blank range. His crime was the largest mass killing, uh, mass killing in, New York's, uh, in the New York area since 1949. But jurors decided that drugs and stress were, quote, a reasonable explanation for his actions. They said the man had, quote, acted under extreme emotional distress and the influence of drugs. So they found him guilty on a lesser charge that brought only a light sentence. Another story I read said this, quote, A man who was shot and paralyzed while committing a burglary in New York recovered damages from the store owner who shot him. His attorney told a jury, jury rather, the man was, first of all, a victim of society driven to crime by economic disadvantages. Now, the lawyer said, he is a victim of the insensitivity of the man who shot him. Because of that man's callous disregard of the thief's plight as a victim, the poor criminal will be confined to a wheelchair for the rest of his life. He deserves some redress. And the jury agreed. The store owner paid a large settlement. And guess what? Several months later... The same man, still in his wheelchair, was arrested while committing another armed robbery. Unbelievable, right? And how about this story? A San Francisco city supervisor claimed he murdered a fellow supervisor and mayor George Moscone because of too much. Are you ready for this? Junk food. Especially a hostess Twinkies made him act irrationally. This is a true story. Thus, the famous Twinkie defense was born. A lenient jury bought the line and produced a verdict of voluntary manslaughter rather than murder. They ruled that the junk food resulted, are you ready for this, diminished mental capacity, which mitigated the killer's guilt. And guess what? He was out of prison before the mayor's next term would have been complete. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Right? Unbelievable. Now listen, I recognize that some of these examples are pretty extreme and some are even somewhat humorous. But the reason I share them is they evidence the fact that we as people like to shift the blame of sin on something or on someone else. Another example of this very thing is seen in all the many ways that sin has been renamed in our generation with labels such as low self-esteem, chemical imbalance, diseases such as alcoholism, psychological illnesses, addictions, labels such as ADD or OCD, and the list goes on and on and on and on. We tend to make up diseases for our sin rather than take personal ownership of it. In his book, Vanishing Conscience, John MacArthur addressed this issue at great length. In one place, he wrote this, quote, Perhaps the most prevalent means of escaping blame is by... <clears throat> Excuse me, is by classifying every human failing as some kind of disease. Drunkards and drug addicts can check into clinics for treatment for their chemical dependencies. Children who habitually defy authority can escape the condemnation by being labeled hyperactive or having ADD. Gluttons are no longer blameworthy, they suffer from an eating disorder. Even the man who throws away his family's livelihood to pay for prostitutes is supposed to be an object of compassionate understanding. He is addicted to sex. He goes on to write, These days, everything wrong with humanity is likely to be explained as an illness. What we used to call sin is more easily diagnosed as a whole array of disabilities. All kinds of immorality and evil conduct are now identified as symptoms of this or that psychological illness. Criminal behavior, various perverse passions, and every imaginable addiction have all been made excusable by the crusade to label them medical afflictions. Even commonplace struggles such as emotional weakness, depression, and anxiety are also almost universally defined as quasi medical rather than as spiritual afflictions. And he's right, isn't he? We live in a society today where we look for any and every excuse for sin rather than do what we should do, and that is look into the mirror to find out who is the real guilty party. Think about your own life for a moment. Think about your own life. When you sin in some way, how often do you blame it on your circumstances or on your environment or on someone else? Reactions to sinful choices such as, I lost my temper, but I didn't mean to. Or I said that because you made me upset. Or I did that because that's the way my parents raised me. That was just part of my upbringing. Or I responded like that because that's just part of my personality. That's just part of who I am. Listen, those are all examples of ways we point the finger elsewhere and we don't accept and own up to the sinfulness in our own lives. As sinners, we try to convince ourselves that other people or our circumstances or the way we were brought up make us sin. But can I let you in on a little secret, beloved? No one or no circumstance ever makes you sin. Certainly other people or our circumstances can make it extremely difficult not to sin at times. So I don't want to disregard that or discount that. But we need to understand the truth that the underlying reason you and I sin, are you ready for this, is because we choose to sin. Listen, the problem with sin isn't something out there. The problem with sin begins in our hearts. And that is what James tells us right here in James chapter 1. Please follow along if you would, if you're already there and your Bible's at James 1. Please follow along as I read verses 13 through 18. And James writes these words. He says in verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, When desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures." Well, if you're familiar with the book of James, and at least with the first chapter, you'll recall that the very first subject James addresses in this letter is the subject of trials. In the first 12 verses of chapter 1, James urges his readers to embrace life's trials with joy, knowing that God uses them to test and to refine and to strengthen our faith. Trials are designed to make us better. Trials are designed to make us more mature. And trials are designed to make us stronger Christians. And so throughout the opening section, James says you need to recognize that. And avoid doing anything that will hinder God's maturing and perfecting work in your life. You see, beloved, trials have the potential to make us better, but it's not automatic. It all boils down to our response, and it all boils down to our cooperation to the Spirit's sanctifying and perfecting work in our lives. Well, having said all that, James, being the pastor that he was, anticipates a very difficult question from a Christian who is walking in the midst of a trial. And the question goes something like this. If God is sovereign, and if he is in control over everything, and if he is the one who is allowing the trial, and I sin as a response to it, can I say that it was his fault for my response and not my own? After all, I wasn't looking for the trial, and I certainly didn't ask for the trial. Therefore, can I say that it was his fault and his responsibility because he is the one who brought it in the first place? Well, the answer to that question is an emphatic no. And James, in this section, will go on to tell us specific ways in how we as believers can prevent a trial from a te- becoming a temptation leading into sin. Now, before we jump into the text this morning, I think it's worth noting that the Greek word James uses for temptation in these verses is the same Greek word he's used for trials up until this point in the passage. The same Greek word for temptation is the same Greek word for trials. And here's how the two words are are related. Here's how the two concepts are related. God gives us trials to test and to refine our faith. If we respond rightly to those trials, our faith will grow and mature and develop. However, if we respond wrongly, they become a temptation towards sin. Does that make sense? In other words, trials rightly faced serve to strengthen our faith, but wrongly met become a temptation or solicitation to evil. And so here's the question. When I'm in a trial... How can I keep that trial from turning into a temptation towards sin? Well, James gives us insight into that very issue. And in verses 13 through 18 of this uh, chapter here, James is going to provide us with four ways, four practical ways to prevent a trial from becoming a temptation. And the first is this, identify the source of temptation. Identify the source of temptation. Look at verse 13. James writes, but let, uh, let no one say when he is tempted... I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does He Himself tempt anyone. Here in this verse, James tells us that if a trial we encounter in life ever turns into a temptation leading to sin, listen, God is not the one to blame. In other words, if we ever find ourselves being tempted to respond wrongfully to a trial, we should never point the finger upward. We should never point the finger at God. Why? Because, as the passage says, God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does He Himself tempt anyone. Listen, the reason God brings trials into our lives and in the lives of His people is not for the purpose of tempting us, it's not for the purpose of drawing us into sin, but rather it's to pull us toward a greater maturity and to greater depths in our Christian lives. God's desires and trials are good, His desires are to make us stronger and better, and there are a number of passages that affirm this very truth. In fact, right here in the first chapter of his letter, James writes in verse 2, he says, "'My brother, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing.'" You see, one of the reasons God brings trials into our lives is to strengthen our faith and to mature our faith and to develop our character. That's his goal in trials. God gives us trials to mature us and to refine us with the purpose of conforming our character to be just like his sons. As Rick Holland once put it, he said this, trials are the chisel that God uses to shape us into the image of Christ. Isn't that right? He's exactly right. Trials are the chisel that God uses to shape us and mold us into the image of his son. Another passage that relates to this is Romans eight twenty eight, which says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for what? For good, right? To those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, most of you have lived long enough to know that not everything that happens to a Christian is good. But the good news, the great news, is that based on Romans 8, God uses everything for our good and for his glory. Another passage that's extremely relevant to this topic is 1 Corinthians 10 13. Hold your place here and turn with me if you would back in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and this is a, a verse that is probably familiar to many of you. And uh, here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, Paul writes these words. He says, he says, No temptation is overtaking you has overtaken you except such as common to man. And of course, we would say amen to that. We all would agree with that, that all of us experience temptations. That's a part of life, isn't it? So he says, no temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. But God is what? He is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape for what purpose? That you may be able to endure it. That you may be able to, the Greek word is meno" to be able to to remain under, to to persevere through the trial. You see, God is not responsible for temptations. In fact, when temptations come, 1 Corinthians 10.13 tells us that God always provides a way of escape. And he always provides a path to victory. So here, if we go back to James chapter 1, here in James 1 verse 13 James goes to great lengths to emphasize, listen, that God is not the one to blame for sin and temptation. And I think the reason he stresses this point is because the issue of who is to blame in temptation is really something as old as sin. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, hold your place here now and turn back to the first book of the Bible, to Genesis chapter 3. Over to Genesis chapter 3. And as we approach verse 11, it's worth noting that Adam and Eve have already eaten of the forbidden fruit, and thus they've already fallen into sin. And so God confronts them. And let's go back to verse 9, where it says, Genesis 3, verse 9, it says, Then the Lord God called to Adam, and he said to him, Where are you? And Adam replied, and he said, I'm sorry, and so he said, I heard your voice in the garden. This is Adam replying. I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Now, why was Adam hiding? I mean, he had never done that previously. Why was he hiding now? Well, the reason Adam was hiding is because he had sinned and he was afraid of coming into contact. He was afraid of coming face to face with the infinite holy God. And so in verse 11, it says, And God said, Who told you that you were naked? All of a sudden, he has this self consciousness. Where did that come from? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Now, listen, all Adam had to say was what? Yes, God, I took of the fruit and I ate of it. I take full responsibility for what I did. But instead, verse 12 records, look at verse 12. It says, then the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. Or she gave me of the fruit and I ate. So whose fault was it for eating the forbidden fruit? Well, Adam suggests it was the woman's fault. After all, he went to sleep one night and never had seen a woman in his life. And then he woke up the next morning and was married to one. And so uh, Adam, you know, he didn't have a clue what a woman was. But you see, the real issue isn't that Adam merely blamed Eve for his sin. Notice Adam said, the woman whom what? You gave to be with me. In this scenario, who was Adam blaming? God, that's right. Adam was saying, listen, God, you could have picked any woman for me. Any woman. Why did you have to pick her? It's all your fault. And if you know the story, it doesn't stop there, right? Because look at verse 13. It says, and the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So when Eve was questioned by God, her response was just like that of her husband. She blame shifted just like her husband, Adam. She in a sense was saying, I didn't create that serpent. I didn't didn't place that serpent in the garden. I didn't make that serpent to talk. And by blaming the serpent, just like her husband Adam, Eve was ultimately blaming whom? God, right? And so here in Genesis 3, we see that Adam and Eve blame God for their sin. And guess what? It's been that way ever since. Now I know what some of you are thinking this morning. Some of you are thinking, John, I, I hear what you're saying here, but I can't think of any situation in my life where I've blamed God or I've said to him, God, this is your fault. You are to blame for this, God. I can't think of any scenario in my life where I've done that. But you know what? It's very possible that you have without even realizing it. Just think about your own life for a moment. Are there any areas of your life where you would consider yourself to be a victim of something? If so, then there's a sense in which you're blaming God because he is sovereign over everything that happens to you. Therefore, if you walk through a situation in sin and begin to blame it on your circumstances or on something in the past or someone else, ultimately, you're blaming God because God could have made none of those things happen if he so desired. But the reality is, God does allow us to walk through deep waters in life. And he does allow us to experience challenging and difficult circumstances. Why? To serve as a crutch in life no, that's not why. Listen, the reason God has allowed and caused your life to be exactly like it is is so that you would continually look to him and have your faith become more like Jesus Christ. Now back to James. Back to our text in the book of James. <clears throat> so you want to know how to prevent a trial from turning into uh, prevent a trial from turning into, into a temptation? First, James tells us you need to identify the source of temptation. And as we've just seen in our text here in verse 13, the source of temptation, listen, it's not God himself. Instead, the source of temptation comes with, from within. It starts with us. Now, how can I say that? Well, that leads us to point number two on our outline, and that is understand the process of temptation. Understand the process of temptation. Look at verse 14. James continues. He says, but each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. This verse tells us specifically how temptation works. James tells us that the process of temptation begins when we're drawn away by our own desires. And the fact that James refers to our desires, I think, is significant for at least two reasons. First, it reminds us that if we give in to temptation and sin, sin, it's not because we had to. Listen, the number one reason you and I give in to temptation is because of our desires. In the moment of temptation, the desire for sin begins to look so much better and so much greater than the joy of obedience. And it all begins when our hearts are being drawn away. Drawn away from what? Drawn away from finding our joy and our contentment and our satisfaction in the Lord and in him alone. You see, beloved, when we give into temptation, we're basically saying this, God, you're pretty good. You're pretty good. But that something else seems a whole lot better right now. John Piper put it this way. He said, sin is what you do when your heart is not satisfied with God. Isn't that right? Sin is what you do when your heart is not satisfied with God. In other words, sin is when the desire for sin eclipses the joy of obedience and following after Christ. It's interesting to note that the word drawn away here is a hunting term. Used to refer to animals being lured into a trap. The word enticed is a similar word. It's actually a fishing term used to describe the bait whose purpose was to draw the fish in and capture it. And you know, that's exactly how temptation works, isn't it? Just as animals can be drawn to their deaths uh, deaths by attractive, pleasure-looking bait, temptation, listen, it promises pleasure. It promises something good. It promises satisfaction. But the end is actually harmful. The end is. Is very deadly. The second reason I think James's reference to our desires is significant is because it serves as a reminder that each of us are tempted differently. Isn't that right? And some of you may be tempted toward lust. Others of you may be tempted toward anger. For others of you, the greatest temptation may be laziness. While others for you, it may be having a critical spirit or, or being harsh or abrasive toward others. Listen, each of us have unique struggles and specific battles of temptation. And so here's a question for you to consider. Hey, which battle, what, what battle currently is at the top for you? What temptation or what sin most often comes between you and Jesus? What James wants to make clear here in this section is that the problem of our temptation isn't something out there, it actually comes from within. And verse 15 continues to illustrate that. Look at verse 15. It says, then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Here in this verse, James shifts metaphors from hunting and fishing to talking in terms of gestation or pregnancy. James says, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Here, James uses the image of gestation to illustrate the point that sin and temptation involves a process. And It's a process in which the desire begins to impact the mind, and the mind begins to impact a person's will and behavior. As most of you know, a woman's gestation period, that is the time that she conceives to the time she delivers, lasts a period of about nine months, right? 270 days. You might find it interesting that it's not that way with all of God's creation. It's not that way with all of God's creatures. For example, a giraffe's gestation period is 450 days. That's 15 months A chipmunk's is only 31 days. Wouldn't that be nice, ladies? A lion's is uh, 108 days. A dog's on average is about 60 days. A monkey's is about 160 days. A seal's is about 300 days, about 10 months. A hamster is only about 20 days. And an elephant's gestation period. Are you ready for this? lasts about 616 days. That's close to two years. That's a really long time, isn't it, from conception to birth? Well, by way of contrast, what James tells us here is that the gestation of sin happens not in a period of months, not even in a period of days, or not even in a period of minutes, but instead it happens at the speed of thought, and it takes place almost instantaneously. James tells us that when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. In other words, when a fleeting thought becomes a meditation or when a fleeting thought, be- begin, you know, turns into something that you begin to chew on or dwell on or entertain in your mind, that is when you know it has become a sin. You know, sometimes we wrongly assume that sin is simply the result of doing something or acting in a wrong way. But James tells us that sin is something that occurs even before you act it out. It begins at the level of our hearts. And then James at the end of verse 15 says, sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. And what kind of death did James have in mind here? Well, given the context, it seems that James is referring to death in the sense of separation. And not separation in the sense of, our, uh, of a person's losing his or her salvation because that can't happen. No, separation in the sense of, of our putting a barrier in our relationship with the Lord, and that, of course, is the effect that sin can have in our lives isn 't that right? When we give into sin then there's a, when we give into sin into our lives there 's a sense in which there 's placed a break and a barrier in our intimacy and in our fellowship with the lord and so that 's what James is saying here and so what we see here is that the issue of sin and the issue of temptation it involves a process. well, a third way to prevent a trial from becoming a temptation. you look on your outline is recognize the deceitfulness of sin. Recognize sin's deceit. Look at verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. The fact that James warns us not to be deceived implies what? That many are deceived. Isn't that right? Many are deceived about the nature and destruction of sin. Beloved, sin is so deceitful, isn't it? And what is the deception? The deception is that while sin may appear good and while sin may appear satisfying, the results of pursuing its path are devastating. Listen, the reason sin looks so good is because it promises pleasure and it promises satisfaction, all the while hiding the terrible consequences that are sure to follow down the road. It's no wonder that there's so many passages in Scripture that exhort us to fight sin or to put off sin or to resist sin or to flee from sin. Sin is such a deadly poison, and it is so deceptive. Though sin may look like it brings greater satisfaction than what God has to offer, the reality is there is nothing further from the truth. By the way, can I ask you, hey, how how is your battle going right now with sin? How is your battle with, go, with sin going right now? Are you fighting sin? Are you resisting it? Or are there areas in your life where you're allowing sin to have its way in you? You know, I appreciate the challenging words of John Owen when he said this. He said, do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? In other words, are you staying in the battle? Are you presently fighting sin? He writes, be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. And then he closes by making this statement. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. That's a good statement, isn't it? Be killing sin. Listen, be killing sin or you can be certain it will be killing you. It will be destroying you. So how can we prevent a trial from becoming a temptation? Number one, identify the source of temptation. Number two, understand the process of temptation number 3 recognize the deceitfulness of sin and then lastly remember the goodness of God look at verse 17 James says every good every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning here in this verse James reminds us of the goodness of God's character he reminds us that the nature of God is such that it only produces good and on the negative side, that means that there's nothing that God does that is evil. On the positive side, it means that God is the giver of unending and abounding good. And it's interesting to me how James refers to God in this passage. He refers to him how? As he refers to God as the father of lights. The mentioning of lights here is a reference to the celestial bodies, such as the sun and the moon and the stars. As you know, those celestial bodies are incredible, incredible facets of God's creation. Yet as part of nature, those things are subject to change, but not so with God. And that is why James adds the last phrase in verse 17, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. You see, God is good, and his goodness never, ever varies. It never changes. And if you're like me, beloved, this is something you need to be reminded of time and time again. You see, when walking through a trial, the temptation to blame God or to doubt this aspect of God's character becomes great. Isn't that right? Circumstances can be such that we can begin to doubt this aspect of God's character. But let me encourage you this morning, beloved, don't ever doubt this aspect of God's character. Don't ever doubt the goodness of God. Psalm 34, 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is what? Good. Good. Blessed is a man who trusts in him. Psalm 52, 9 says, I will praise you forever for what you have done. In your name, I will hope for your name is good. Psalm 54, 6 says, Willingly I will sacrifice to thee. I will give thanks to thy name, I, uh, thy name O Lord, for it is what? Good. And in Psalm eighty-four eleven, it says, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory for no what? Good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Why is that? Because God is abounding in goodness, and he is a giver of good. And so God is good. And that is true even when life is hard, and even when things are happening in life that don't make sense to us. And aren't there situations like that in life, beloved, where you walk through life and you think, I just just don't understand that. And I I just can't comprehend what's, what's unfolding here in my life or in another person's life. And James understands that. And what he wants to reiterate is that God is good even when life things happen in life that we don't understand. And so James says, when a trial comes, don't let your response involve the questioning of God's goodness. Don't let it be the questioning of his wisdom or the questioning of his control. Instead, remember the goodness of God. And what is one vivid example of God's goodness in our lives? Look at verse 18. He closes this section by saying, Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. One of the greatest illustrations of God's goodness is the precious gift of salvation. Isn't that right? And how are we saved? Well, the first phrase in the verse tells us, by his own what? Will. In other words, if you're a Christian, it's because God willed it to happen. If you have chosen to follow God, it is because he has first chosen you. As someone, uh, someone once put it, Salvation is like a door with a sign on the entrance, which reads, whosoever will may come. But once you get inside the door, you see a sign on the backside, which says, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And isn't that how it works? If you're a Christian, it's because God, cho- uh, God sovereignly chose to save you. And so here's the question. Are you ready for it? Are you amazed by that truth? Are you still amazed by, by the wonder of your salvation? You know, the longer we're Christians, the easier it is to take the awesome truth of our salvation for granted. Isn't that right? We read statements like verse 18 here with such familiarity that we don't appreciate the awesome weight of the statement they form. And yet James tells us that the truth of our salvation should be so powerful in our hearts, it should be so riveted in our minds that it should serve as an anchor to us when life is hard and during times where we might be tempted to doubt the goodness and the graciousness of God's character. Let's close in prayer. Father, is coming off of this last verse here in James. Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the gift of salvation. And Father, as we approach Easter Sunday, we're reminded of the cross and all that Christ has done for us. And Lord, as we've just seen in our study this morning, our salvation, it very much reveals your character. It reveals to us that you, God, are very, very good. And so, Father, may we be a people who enjoy your goodness. And may that thinking, may our understanding of your good character, may that govern all that we say and all that we do. And, Father, before we close, we pray for anyone who is here this morning who has not received the gift of salvation. Father, help them to come to grips with the fact that they are sinners. Help them to come to grips with the fact that they are in need of the mercy of God and in need of a Savior. May they put their trust in you because only in you is their salvation and only in you is their eternal life. We pray this in Christ's precious and holy name. Amen.